There are many questions in Russia about what comes next after this weekend's insurrection by a paramilitary group and the truce that ended it. It's Monday, June 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Russians opposed to President Vladimir Putin hope the mutiny leads to his downfall. Everything which can diminish the power of Putin's regime is good. When we heard about this news, like we were very positive. Also, a Pittsburgh jury begins deciding today whether the gunman in a 2018 synagogue shooting will get the death penalty. And this hour, the president of the political fundraising group Emily's List on why she's spending millions to improve the image of Vice President Kamala Harris. What our effort currently is focused on is to remind the American people just how dedicated of a public servant she has been. Red Sox lose, cloudy with storms possible this afternoon near 80. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. It's a non-working holiday today in Moscow. The dust is settling after a brief but failed armed insurrection by a mercenary force against Russia's military leadership. Yet, as NPR's Charles Maines reports, the whereabouts and views of key players in the standoff remain unknown. A new video released to social media shows Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu visiting a Russian army base in Ukraine, the first time the minister has been spotted since a group of mercenaries briefly seized a major Russian city and marched on Moscow demanding his ouster. Yet Shoigu made no reference to the rebellion, and it was unclear when the video was filmed. Similarly, State TV aired a Sunday interview with President Vladimir Putin that appears to have been taped days earlier. Meanwhile, the man who led the rebellion, the head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has not been seen since he ordered his mercenaries back to base late Saturday under a deal that supposedly will see him relocate to neighboring Belarus in exchange for amnesty. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Severe storms with tornadoes struck Indiana yesterday, killing at least one person and leaving another injured. The deadly tornado was in Martin County, southwest of Indianapolis. A second tornado hurtled through Johnson County, the Indianapolis suburbs. Eric Funkhauser is a fire chief in the county. We're probably looking at, right now, at least 75 homes with moderate uh, to severe damage from the tornado being on the ground. He says there's about three miles of damage. The National Weather Service says a vigorous system is now moving east. Storms with damaging winds and large hail could hit the mid-Atlantic, including Washington, D.C. President Biden is kicking off a new effort to promote infrastructure projects. Today, he will focus on broadband Internet. Today, Biden will announce that about $40 billion are available to states to expand high-speed Internet access. A federal jury in Pennsylvania will begin the penalty phase in the trial of Robert Bowers today. Earlier this month, jurors convicted him of killing 11 Jewish worshipers at a synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018. From member station WESA, Julia Zenkovich reports he could receive the death penalty. A jury found Bowers guilty on 63 federal counts during the first phase of the trial. In the second phase, the same jury will decide whether his crimes make him eligible for the death penalty and if he should be executed. The decision must be unanimous. If the jury finds Bowers eligible for the death penalty, defense lawyers will present mitigating circumstances that may convince the jury to spare his life, including a recent psychiatric evaluation. Defense lawyers previously alluded to offering evidence that Bowers has schizophrenia, epilepsy, and brain abnormalities. The prosecution is expected to focus on the methodical and targeted nature of the crimes. For NPR News, I'm Julia Zankovich in Pittsburgh. You're listening to NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Healy is in Ireland this morning for her first international trip since taking office in January. While there, she'll take part in several meetings aimed at developing business opportunities between Massachusetts and Ireland. WBUR Steve Brown reports she'll also address the Irish Senate. The governor's trip comes as Ireland is marking 30 years since the country decriminalized homosexuality. Her visit also comes on the 60-year anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's historic trip to his ancestral home. Healy also has family roots in Ireland. Before leaving, the governor said she hopes it will be a productive week. We're going to also be spending time meeting with businesses, companies that are based here, that have operations in Ireland, as well as Irish companies who we hope to recruit and bring to Massachusetts. The governor said trade discussions will focus on clean energy, clean tech, and life sciences. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Efforts to improve safety at the MBTA will be in the spotlight today on Beacon Hill. Leaders with the transit agency will meet with lawmakers for an update on what's being done to improve the safety culture at the T. That culture was sharply criticized in a report from the Federal Transit Administration last year. State lawmakers say they invited FTA leaders to attend today's hearing, but they declined. The T's general manager, Phil Ang, will be there. Coast Guard officials in Boston plan to investigate the implosion of a submersible in the Atlantic. Five people headed to view the wreck of the Titanic died last week. The group is opening its highest level of inquiry to determine the cause of the incident. Coast Guard Captain Jason Neubauer is leading that investigation. It's an opportunity to uh, learn from the incident and then work with our international partners worldwide to improve uh, regulations or international safety standards improved oversight over these operations and uh, to prevent a similar occurrence. Officials say the final report could include recommendations for civil or criminal charges. Police are investigating the shooting deaths of two people in Braintree. Investigators say a 16-year-old Braintree high school student and 19-year-old Dorchester man were shot in front of the student's home early yesterday. No arrests have been made. Investigators say they don't believe there's an ongoing threat to public safety. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The Red Sox fell to the White Sox 4-1 to yesterday in Chicago. Boston ended its week-long road trip with a 3-4 and record. The Sox are off today. They'll host the Miami Marlins tomorrow. Hopkinton High School alum Keegan Bradley won his sixth PGA Tour event yesterday. He captured the Travelers Championship in Connecticut, winning the event by three strokes. There's a dense fog advisory in effect for the south coast Cape and Islands until 10 this morning. Mostly cloudy today with showers and storms possible this afternoon. It'll be near 80. Clouds overnight with more rain possible in the 60s. Cloudy with storms possible again tomorrow near 80 again. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Russian President Vladimir Putin has spent more than 20 years crushing opponents. So what does he do after an opponent appeared in his inner circle? Over the weekend, Yevgeny Prigozhin sent convoys of armed men toward Moscow. Prigozhin had used his ties to Putin to rise to wealth and power. And then he and the mercenaries he'd been leading in Russia's war against Ukraine turned against the government. Putin quickly defused the crisis by letting his former friend slip away to Belarus. We don't know how much the crisis has shaken Putin's power. NPR's Greg Myrie is following this from Kiev. Hey there, Greg. Yeah. Hey, Steve. What is Putin saying now? Well, pretty much nothing. Um, After this huge day of chaos on Saturday, Russia has largely gone quiet. We aren't seeing or hearing from either Russian leader Vladimir Putin or the mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, the two main players. Now, Putin spoke briefly on Russian TV Saturday morning. He promised decisive action after Prigozhin's fighters began on this highway up toward Moscow. But he's now been out of sight for more than 48 hours. Uh, State TV ran a brief interview with him Sunday, but this was taped before the weekend, so we don't know where he is or what his next move will be. One other quick note, Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who's also been invisible in recent days, visited Russian troops in Ukraine to get a briefing, according to Russia's defense ministry. Oh, now that's significant since Prigozhin was saying that he was protesting against that defense minister, so he at least makes an appearance. How does this all look to people in Ukraine where you are? Yeah, when the events were unfolding Saturday, there was this sort of running commentary from just about everyone. One social media video in particular went viral. It showed this well-known soldier sitting in his military truck in the field, watching the media reports from Russia, and he was munching on these three huge tubs of popcorn. So the Ukrainians were really very interested observers. But with the rebellion in Russia over, the attention has really turned back to the fighting in Ukraine. President Zelensky and other leaders are are saying this just confirms what Ukraine has been saying all along. Russia is weak and fractured, and the only permanent solution is to drive out all the Russian troops. As best you can tell, has Putin's government regained control of the Wagner mercenaries? It's really hard to say with any uh, definite, uh, in any definite way, so I don't want to speculate too much. What we do know is that Prigozhin gave an order for his troops to return to their camps, uh, either in, in Ukraine or in, in southern Russia. There's been no indication that they're causing any trouble at the moment. But we haven't heard from Prigozhin either since on Saturday night he announced that he would be uh, leaving Russia, going to Belarus. We don't know if he's still in Russia, if he's gone to Belarus. So he's gone quiet as well. And for the moment, his his troops are quiet. Does all of this change Ukraine's plans for the war? Well, you know, it certainly comes at an opportune moment for the Ukrainians. They've just begun this offensive. It's now in its third week. I think a big question they'll be trying to sort out is what happens to these mercenary fighters in the Wagner group who've played such an important role. Will they be disbanded, which appears likely? Will some be folded into the Russian army? Quite possible. So for the moment, the fighting continues as it's been going, but it's likely to have some ramifications further down the road. Interest, Greg Myrie, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Sure thing, Steve. What do Russians make of all of this? NPR's Fatima Tanis reports from Istanbul, a city that anti-war Russians made their haven after the invasion of Ukraine. 
Elena and Maxim, a couple in their 20s, were walking their corgi when I approached them for their reaction to what was going on in Russia. They looked at each other and laughed. Like other Russians who spoke to NPR, they did so under the condition that we not reveal their full names because they still work for Russian companies remotely. It's circus because even they don't have power. Even they can't control their pets. The pet here is the leader of the mercenary Wagner Group who staged the mutiny, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Russia has depended on Wagner mercenaries to advance its military goals, including in Ukraine. They pay, he do something what they want, but they even can't control him. Prigozhin led an armed uprising, which ended only with a deal being struck that saw him exiled to Belarus. Russia also agreed to drop the charges of mutiny against him. He is like football player. He played bad in a Russian territory, in our territory, and another country by him. Elena says this was one of the craziest things that happened in Russia in her lifetime, second only to the invasion of Ukraine last year. The two are now worried that Russian President Vladimir Putin could increase repressive measures to consolidate his grip on power and that life for their family and friends in Moscow might get much harder. As we see people in Russia, it's really difficult to make government to go away. They have a lot of power. But for others like Ilya, who used to volunteer as an election watcher back in Russia, the way it all fizzled out was a massive disappointment. He was following the events with a group of friends who were close to Alexei Navalny, the jailed Russian opposition leader. Everything which can diminish the power of Putin's regime is good. So when we heard about this news, like we were very positive. But then just it was like <laughs> the war stand of a TV series, so it was a fluke. He says they were in contact with other Russian politicians, their former colleagues, who were also excited at what the uprising could mean for Putin. They are part of Putin's party, but they were hoping that it would bring some changes, maybe stop the war, like topple the Putin's regime. So even like among Putin supporters, uh, government officials, there are definitely a lot of people which are against him. Ilya says they were all hoping that Wagner's march would encourage other armed groups and would turn into a bigger resistance. Prigozhin uh, betrayed this opportunity. Like, uh, people like, see it as a betrayal? Because we, we, we don't know his true intentions. He's like a murderer himself, like, and he's a thief. He's a war criminal, so basically. But still, like, we hope that if somehow this internal tension explodes in Russia, it definitely uh, should have helped Ukraine to like drive back Russian troops and to like free its own uh, territories. And this didn't happen as well. Do you feel like Putin is weaker now? Yeah, of course. At least, okay, if he doesn't care about like international reaction, I think he doesn't care uh, to some extent. But for general public, they saw that Putin is not so powerful. Ilya says the invasion of Ukraine was the beginning of the end of Putin. The chaos of Prigozhin's mutiny might be over for now, but he says it's only a matter of time before fresh turmoil hits Russia. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Istanbul. Some other news now from Atlanta. Activists plan a week of action opposing a police and fire training facility there. City officials recently approved funding for the project, but opponents vowed it will never be built. In recent months, police killed one activist and accused others of being domestic terrorists. So NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef has been looking into this. She is in Atlanta. Good morning. 
Good morning. For people who have not followed this every day, what is this facility and why has it drawn such attention? Well, Steve, it's officially called the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, and it's meant to be a state-of-the-art campus where law enforcement will train. And people I've spoken to have compared this to the Dakota Access Pipeline controversy when they're trying to explain just how significant this issue has become to the far left right now. Mm. Um, this has drawn activists from all over because it's rolling together many of some of the most uh, pressing conflicts of our time. You know, this has been activating police abolitionists, racial justice advocates, also environmental activists who are really alarmed that this would destroy a forest that's been called one of the, quote, four lungs of Atlanta. And now, Steve, we're also seeing tremendous concern from watchdog groups who say that the state is exercising dangerous government overreach in the way that it has dealt with some of the activists. Well, let's talk about that. How did police come to say that some of these activists are domestic terrorists? Well, in December, we started to see arrests of some of the activists, uh, and law enforcement began uh, alleging that dozens of them belong to a group deemed a domestic violent extremism group. And that has caused some confusion, namely because, Steve, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security does not keep a list of domestic violent extremist groups, hmm. you know, because doing so could be construed as uh, criminalizing certain political viewpoints. And we might be starting to see local officials struggling with this now because on Friday there was this very surprising development. One of the prosecutors here, DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston, announced that her office will not prosecute 42 of these defendants after all. Um, here she is speaking on station WABE saying that local officials have struggled to see eye to eye on all of this. We had some some differences and when I say we, I mean myself in the attorney general's office, about who should be charged and what they should be charged with. I want to understand what's being said there. So the county prosecutor, or a county prosecutor, does not want to proceed with this case, but then she refers to the state attorney general. What does that mean for the case? That's right. So that's State Attorney General Chris Carr, um, who our understanding is still uh, pursuing uh, these these cases. Hmm. But the thing is, Steve, Carr is a Republican. And so this development has further bolstered this argument um, for many who've had doubts about the underlying motivation for the case. They see it as a political vendetta against leftist activists and as the state using its authority to repress dissent. Carr's office did not respond to questions or requests for interview. What are you watching for this week? When we say a week of action, what does that mean? Well, activities will be happening throughout the week, and I'll be watching uh, to see if there's some direct action near the forest where uh, an activist was killed in January, um, specifically to see if that results in arrests and further allegations of domestic terrorism. And Pierre Zodet, Yusuf, thanks for your reporting. Sure thing. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a jury is considering whether the man found guilty in the fatal shooting of 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018 should get the death penalty. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? 
to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. U.S. universities educate thousands of foreign-born students. They graduate with the skills the U.S. needs, and they want to stay here. So why does our immigration system make it so hard for them to stay? They're benefiting from the failures of the U.S. system. We're just letting this happen. We're watching it go. We're watching these people leave. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A heads up for T-Riders this morning. Regular service on the entire Green Line has resumed today. For the past two weeks, trains were not running between Government Center and North Station. And over on the Orange Line, service has resumed at Haymarket Station. Some patchy fog this morning, otherwise cloudy with a chance of scattered showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. We'll have a high near 80. Tonight, more showers and thunderstorms possible with a low around 70. Tomorrow begins with patchy fog, rain and thunderstorms, then turns mostly cloudy with a high near 78. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool, designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at totalwine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Good morning. Cryptocurrency scams are on the rise. Last year, more than 50,000 consumers reported being defrauded by a crypto scam. NPR's Bobby Allen has this story of just one of them. I'm sitting at a dining room table in Los Angeles, about to ask a family about something they really don't want to talk about. Obviously, there's like a shame component to this and a like coming to reality and grips with, hey, I lost 100% of my family's liquidity. Maybe there's a way to get it back. That's Lena O'Connor. Her dad made a friend online who convinced him to invest in crypto. It was a scam. But by the time she found out, it was too late. We basically had an intervention of like, walk us through what you've been doing. Let us explain to you why this is a fraud. And he was like, okay, I won't talk to them anymore. I won't give them any more money. He did. In all, he lost his life savings, $340,000. Lena's brother, Daniel, says the scammer preyed on his father's loneliness. There's a lot of people out there like him, aging boomers who are at home, who might be a little lonely, who aren't as engaged, and who didn't grow up in a time where technology was as available. As Lena and Daniel talk, their father, Noam Lansman, sits quietly and listens. He tells me about his immigrant story. He came to L.A. from the former Soviet Union. When I came here, I spoke little English. So I have to start it from the scratch. 
He ended up in the restaurant supply business for decades. Then the pandemic hit. I lost a lot of clients because a lot of them, restaurants and bars, they closed. So I closed my showroom. So one day he was sitting at home and scrolling Instagram. He stumbled across a post that intrigued him. It said something to the effect of, You can make money in where trading cryptocurrency. He knew some people were making jaw-dropping profits with crypto, so he opened an account. A Russian speaker named Pavel reached out to welcome him to the company, Spirebit. Soon they were talking every day about investing money, but also about Lansman's children, about vacations, about their shared background. Pavel felt like a friend. And so when Pavel started asking him for money to invest, Lansman did. First with $500, and then more and more and more, because it looked like it was paying off. Here's Lansman's son, Daniel. When he logged on to Spirebit, he saw a very compelling fake platform that looked like money was being deposited, and that money was growing. But it wasn't growing at all. In fact, he had no money. He found this out when he tried to make a withdrawal, and Spirebit said it wasn't possible, offering excuse after excuse. At one point, Spirebit sent Lanceman a forged bank document claiming he had to give Spirebit even more money in order to take any money out. Lena O'Connor, Lanceman's daughter. And so as he was working through that, he continued to give them more money. Lanceman was wiring money from his J.P. Morgan Chase bank account into an account on the trading platform Crypto.com. From there, Spirebit instructed him to send money to a third-party digital wallet, where it became untraceable. Both Chase Bank and Crypto.com said since Lanceman authorized those transfers, they couldn't do anything. Lanceman first saw a post about Spirebit on Instagram, but representatives from the social media site never got back to him. He even reported the scam to the LAPD. Here's his son Daniel again. There were so many opportunities for real U.S.-based institutions to flag something. Never happened. So there was like a complete failure to protect my father. Stories like Lanceman's are far too common, especially since the pandemic. The Federal Trade Commission says there's been a 900% increase in total money lost to crypto scams since 2020. Noam Lanceman says he's read about some of them, but he never thought he'd fall victim. I heard and I read, but somehow I thought that I'm not going to be one of them. But he did become one of them. As for Spirebit, NPR tried to find the company. In response to an interview request, it provided generic responses about the risks of investing in crypto. The founder and CEO of Spirebit have LinkedIn profiles, but they're fake. Their profile pictures are stock photos. Their website lists a physical address in London, but when we visited it, it turned out to be a kitchenware company. When NPR reached out to British regulators about Spirebit, they issued a public warning identifying the company as a scam. It's hard to say who is behind Spirebit, where they are, or just how many people have given them money thinking they're investing in cryptocurrency. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Los Angeles. Summer is the season of movie blockbusters. And as the announcer might say in a trailer for a movie, 30 years ago this month, one science fiction film towered above the rest. Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park came out in theaters in June 1993. The movie catapulted the careers of its actors and inspired some movie buffs to study dinosaurs. There is a straight line between Jurassic Park and me becoming a paleontologist. And then later, me becoming the paleontology consultant for Jurassic World, the most recent film. 
Steve Broussardi is a paleontologist at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, so it's his job to dig up dinosaurs and study dinosaurs and write books about dinosaurs. And he says he saw Jurassic Park for the first time in a movie theater when he was nine. And I just remember being flabbergasted by those dinosaurs, being enthralled by them. These dinosaurs were movie monsters, but they were real animals. And they were so different from the dinosaurs in the textbooks we had at school and in the library. Those dinosaurs, they were lumbering dullards, just kind of sitting around waiting to go extinct. They were terrifying, but not exciting. The Jurassic Park dinosaurs, these were active, energetic, intelligent, dynamic animals. And that really stuck with me. Brusati says as a scientist, he never wants to use the word impossible, but a real-life Jurassic Park complete with resurrected dinosaurs seems really, really unlikely. And the reason is that nobody's ever found any dinosaur DNA, and that's because DNA breaks down very quickly once an animal or a plant dies. Apparently there is some ancient DNA from woolly mammoths, relatives of the modern-day elephants, so maybe somebody will succeed in cloning a mammoth. Is that a good idea? That's a question that I think we might have to wrestle with as the gene technology and cloning technology becomes better and better. If we've learned anything from 30 years of watching Jurassic Park and its sequels, maybe let's keep the dinosaurs up on the silver screen. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we look at why a prominent pro-abortion rights group is spending money to improve Vice President Kamala Harris's image. It's 729. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel, mybioheat.com. And Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The European Union's foreign policy chief says last week's short-lived uprising by Wagner Group mercenaries against the Russian military, 16 months into Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, shows the war is damaging Russia's political system. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was asked about it today in Vilnius. The events over the weekend are an internal Russian matter. And yet another demonstration of the big strategic mistake uh, that President Putin made. Russian President Vladimir Putin has not made any public comments on the uprising since Saturday. President Biden is expected to offer details today on how his administration plans to spend billions of dollars to provide high-speed Internet to homes and businesses across the U.S. NPR's Deepa Shivaram says that money was approved by Congress. Right now, the White House says there are about 8.5 million homes and businesses around the country that don't have Internet. The announcement the president is making is that about $40 billion from the 2021 infrastructure law will now be up for grabs. So states can apply for that money and use it to expand high-speed Internet access. White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients says this will be especially helpful for rural communities. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi.
On Beacon Hill today, lawmakers will hear testimony on a bill aimed at protecting the data privacy of people coming from out of state for abortion care. The proposal would make it illegal for companies to sell cell phone location data. Those in support of the bill say it would protect people who come to Massachusetts from criminal action in states where abortion is illegal. Data tracking companies say the information they collect is anonymous. A local migrant services group is praising the Healy administration for setting up more services for new arrivals to Massachusetts. The governor announced last week that the state is opening an intake center for families with a focus on migrants. She also announced a temporary shelter at Joint Base Cape Cod. Jeff Thielman is the president of the International Institute of New England. What the governor has done is a step in the right direction. The number of people living in hotels, for example, has tripled over the past six months. And so I, you know, this is a pretty big problem to solve and it's not gonna be solved by one Air Force base or one one military base being open for services. Groups like Thielman's are partnering with the Healy administration to get the migrants jobs, housing, and English lessons. A Somerville school that was forced to hold classes elsewhere because of crumbling hallways will not reopen on time this fall. An alert sent to parents at the Winter Hill Community Innovation School, obtained by the Boston Herald, says classes will instead be held at the Capuano School. That's because of structural problems at the nearly 50-year-old school. It's unclear when the school may be ready to reopen. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. The Red Sox lost the White Sox 4-1 to yesterday in Chicago. The Sox are off today. They'll host the Miami Marlins tomorrow. A dense fog advisory in effect until 10 this morning covers the South Coast Cape and Islands. It'll be mostly cloudy today, and there are thunderstorms possible this afternoon that may bring heavy rain and gusty winds. Tonight, temperatures fall to around 70 with more showers possible, and tomorrow may start with more thunderstorms. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 78. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Today, Moscow lifted all restrictions imposed over the weekend during the short-lived revolt by the Russian Wagner mercenary group against the Russian government. Now, while the rebellion was abruptly stopped after a deal was struck, it has raised questions about potential long-term consequences for Russian President Vladimir Putin. For more, we turn to Russian investigative journalist Andrei Soldatov. He's co-founder of the Russian Secret Services watchdog website Agentura and a fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Good morning. Morning, Leila. So this was seen as a challenge to Putin's authority. How does this revolt affect Putin's standing at home and abroad? Well, certainly it made Putin seen 
really weak uh, because, uh, well, Putin's been talking about uh, national sovereignty and because of this crisis, uh, he got his minor partner, Alexander Lukashenko, president of Belarus, uh, getting involved, fixing Putin's problem with uh, his uh, pal, which doesn't look good. Yeah, so you're referring to the deal that was struck by the president of Belarus. Now, Putin, before this deal was struck, accused his longtime ally and Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin of treason and then let him go to Belarus without facing charges. Why and what do you think that says? I think the problem here is that uh, Prigozhin is still an asset for Putin. Uh, It was quite interesting that uh, almost immediately, uh, Putin's spokesperson uh, Peskov said that all criminal charges against Prigozhin will be dropped, which means that financial activities and uh, all kinds of activities of Prigozhin's companies, and we are talking not only about the Wagner Group, but we are talking, for instance, of uh, a troll factory which was involved at attacking US election in 2016, most famously, they're still uh, operational. They still can go as if nothing ever happened. Interesting. So in some ways, what you're saying, this shows really the power of the Wagner group. I mean, Putin accused him of treason, called it a stab in the back of Russia, and then quickly backed down. Does this weaken him in his position? Yes, I think so, because it means that uh, right now the people he trusted with protecting his political stability and his political regime, I mean, the Russian security services and the army, they all sort of they have this thought that, uh, look, it's better not to interfere if there is some sort of dispute in the inner circle of, of Putin, because, well, at some moment, these guys, they still can strike a deal and we do not to be the people who would be blamed for uh, for bloodshed. And that is why the Russian security services and the army was so hesitant and actually chose to wait and see. And it looks like they, uh, like, uh, they were absolutely right. Prigozhin has now directly challenged Putin's justification for invading Ukraine. How might that affect how Russians see the war? Well, it is quite strange that uh, even the citizens of Rostov-on-Don, they're quite cheerful about the Wagner Group presence in the city. Uh, and uh, it looks like Prigozhin still is quite popular among the Russians, and, but well, to some extent even in the army. That's Russian investigative journalist Andrei Soldatov of the website Agentura. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Jurors in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting trial hear arguments today over the death penalty for Robert Bowers. He killed 11 worshippers in the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. WESA's Oliver Morrison reports. A majority of the families who lost loved ones say they think Bowers deserves the death penalty. Michelle Rosenthal lost her two brothers, David and Cecil, in the attack. And right before the trial started, she decided to make her stance clear again. Our family has suffered long and hard over the last four and a half years. We don't want to have to continue to defend ourselves and our position. We want justice. But one of the three congregations that worshipped at the Tree of Life was Dor Hadash, and that congregation sent a letter to the Attorney General in 2019 requesting a life sentence. The letter said that the Dor Hadash congregant who was killed in the attack, Jerry Rabinowitz, was, quote, firmly and unequivocally opposed to the death penalty. 
David Harris is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh who has worked to help educate Pittsburghers about legal issues in the trial. And he says some Jewish community members want Bowers to receive the death penalty because inmates on death row have little ability to communicate with the outside world. The idea was that they could do as much as possible to cut this guy off from the world, to not have him be able to communicate with or inspire anybody else beyond the horrible acts he's already done. Rabbi Mark Goodman is an associate rabbi at the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And he says disagreement about the death penalty may seem like division to an outsider. But canonical Jewish texts are structured around arguments and disagreements, which can lead to different interpretations. In the Catholic religion, by contrast, he says, when the Pope makes a pronouncement, followers are supposed to listen. That doesn't work for Jews, Goodman says. For a lot of us in the Jewish community, when you see a rabbi make a pronouncement like it's authoritative and it's the only opinion, most of the rest of us look at that person like, dude, what's up with that guy? Goodman says his congregants are talking about the trial, but they aren't seeking rabbinical advice. A lot of people here have an emotional anger, rage, frustration, deep sadness about the shooting, and they may feel that the person should be put to death. And then they don't necessarily feel great about the idea that Jewish law may come against those feelings. Rabbi Danny Schiff is in charge of adult learning for the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh. And Schiff says the Torah is very clear in stating that capital punishment is allowed. But rabbinical scholars made clear in the Talmud that even one execution every 70 years might be too frequent. It's something that our tradition seems to want to be available, but exceedingly rare. Daniel Feldman is the senior rabbi at Temple Sinai in Pittsburgh. And he says when it's all said and done, the community and legal response to the killings may be more indicative of the place of Jews in America than the hate implied by the crime itself. The attack brought ordinary Pittsburghers into solidarity with the Jewish people, he says, and brought Jewish people together regardless of their different views. It's an overwhelming feeling to think to myself, finally, we're living in a time where this is possible. And what that means, you know, what my grandparents or my great-grandparents would have thought to see this. Fellman says history is replete with examples of Jewish people being attacked without receiving justice. So regardless of the sentence Bowers ultimately receives, his conviction feels momentous. For NPR News, I'm Oliver Morrison in Pittsburgh. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, the Food and Drug Administration may soon grant full approval to a new medication that slows the progression of Alzheimer's. It was created by Cambridge-based Biogen. The drug could be expensive, though, even for patients with insurance. We have some fog this morning, then temperatures rise to around 80 and cloudy skies may gradually clear to let in some sun, but there's also a chance of showers and thunderstorms this afternoon. Tonight it may fall into the 60s and more thunderstorms are possible. Tomorrow yet more storms are possible, then mostly cloudy in and in the upper 70s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston.
WBUR supporters include BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. More people in Massachusetts will hit the road this 4th of July holiday compared to the last four years. AAA Northeast estimates more than one million people will drive out of town this year. The organization says that could be partly because gas prices are much lower than they were a year ago. Union janitors in Cambridge are calling for better treatment ahead of upcoming contract negotiations. The group represents janitors who work at biotechs, including Novartis, Pfizer, and Biogen. Their contract is set to expire in November. One of the group's biggest demands is to have the opportunity to work full-time schedules. Workers tell the Boston Herald that would result in higher pay and better benefits. A tech-powered sushi chain is expanding in the Boston area. Kara Sushi will soon open a new location in Dorchester. The Boston Business Journal reports the restaurant will open later this summer. The chain delivers orders to customers using robots. A new location opened last week at Shoppers World in Framingham. It's 744. At 36 years old, Brian Wallach was told he had ALS. It's 100% fatal. He spent the six years since diagnosis trying to change that. I wake up every day and I realize that I want to live. I'm Juana Summers, turning pain into purpose. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect. Zoom One. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Reproductive rights groups have been fighting to protect abortion access since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Emily's List is backing women Democrats running for office who support abortion rights. The group recently endorsed Vice President Kamala Harris for re-election in 2024, and they do that as Harris continues to see low approval ratings. Emily's List plans on investing tens of millions of dollars to boost her public image. I spoke to LaFonza Butler, the president of Emily's List, about the strategy behind the group's push for Harris. What our effort currently is focused on, in addition to endorsing her, is to remind the American people just how dedicated of a public servant she has been throughout her career in public service. Do you think a lot of that has gotten lost? I mean, because true or not, there is a perception out there that she's somewhat absent in her role, and that's showing in the polls. I mean, is that why you're making this massive investment? I think what is um, present in the polls is continued mis- and disinformation about the work that she is doing. And what um, we want to be able to do with our work is, is fundamentally correct the record. And I would say nothing that we are intending to do is about defending the vice president. What we want to do is advance what people know about the work that she has been doing her entire career. 
The last time there was a presidential election, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, and it was considered settled law at the time. And so mm -hmm. Emily's List mission, I guess it's taken on a different meaning in 2024. I would love to hear specifically how the strategy has shifted because the landscape has shifted since 2020. The Dobbs decision has highlighted the importance of the strategy of Emily's List, the work that we have been doing over many years to focus on electing Democratic pro-choice women at every level of the ballot. We were there with Governor Whitmer when she was running for governor. There is There are pro-choice state legislatures in both Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Mexico. There are states all over this country where you can see the real impact of the work um, that Emily's List has been doing. You mentioned the importance of local races, state races, and attorney general races as access to abortion care, reproductive care is different state to state now that it's not federal law. When you're looking state to state, is there some specific places where you're spending more and you're looking more than others? We have taken the approach, um, taken our strategy, and are really evaluating the spaces in which Republican-dominated state legislatures have already stripped away rights to reproductive care. And um, we have to be looking at states in the southeastern region of this country where millions of women and people who need to access abortion care now don't have access. We continue to evaluate our investments in states like North Carolina. We've got to make sure that we're leaving no stone unturned and leaving no voter or family behind when we think about the care that millions of families need. And the entire southeastern region of the country has to be at the top of everyone's attention. Lafonza Butler, president of EMILY's List. Thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 820, people with medical debt who turn to sites like GoFundMe to raise money are rarely finding success, particularly among communities of color. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. U.S. universities educate thousands of foreign-born students. They graduate with the skills the U.S. needs, and they want to stay here. So why does our immigration system make it so hard for them to stay? They're benefiting from the failures of the U.S. system. We're just letting this happen. We're watching it go. We're watching these people leave. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The dust is settling after a Russian mercenary group's failed revolt that challenged Vladimir Putin's authority in the country. 
President Biden will announce $42 billion in funding today aimed at expanding high-speed Internet access in the U.S. And a jury in Pittsburgh will begin deciding whether the gunman who killed 11 people in a synagogue in 2018 will get the death penalty. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. Cloudy today near 80 with a chance of showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and evening. Tonight it falls to around 70. Tomorrow may start with more fog and thunderstorms, then overcast and in the upper 70s. It's 70 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The United States Army renamed a base in North Carolina, saying the name was nothing to brag about. Braxton Bragg fought in the U.S. Army for years, but then fought against the United States in the Civil War. Fort Bragg is now Fort Liberty, and this has become a presidential campaign talking point. WUNC's Jay Price reports. The two candidates speaking at the North Carolina GOP's annual state convention didn't mince words. First, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And I also look forward to, uh, as president, restoring the name of Fort Bragg to our great military base in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And the next day, former Vice President Mike Pence. We will end the political correctness in the hallways of the Pentagon, and North Carolina will once again be home to Fort Bragg. But the Pentagon didn't force the name change to Liberty. Congress did, in the wake of the 2020 murder of George Floyd, with bipartisan support. After then-President Donald Trump vetoed the bill containing the law, Congress voted to override him. There are a number of legal authorities at play. James Robinette, a retired Army JAG officer, was staff attorney for the special federal commission appointed to shepherd the renaming. Nine bases named for Confederate leaders are being renamed, all of them this year. And that law flatly says the military can't refer to the Confederacy when it names anything. If a future president were to say executive order for liberty is renamed Fort Bragg, And you have no idea what the future Congress would look like, but it could be a future Congress might choose to say, yeah, I don't think so. The candidates' campaigns didn't respond to interview requests, so it's unclear how or whether they would follow through. The renaming process has been lengthy and elaborate, and by the time the next president could act, the new base names would likely have been in use for years and millions of dollars spent on everything from signage to website retooling. Re-renaming any of them would cause whiplash in the local communities. Mitch Colvin is mayor of the city of Fayetteville, a adjacent to Fort Liberty. Colvin, who's black, says it's time to move on. We certainly applaud the government for turning the page on the Civil War Confederate dark part of our history, and I hope that these candidates can focus on more important things. Retired two-star General Rodney Anderson was a senior commander on the base. He says the candidates are engaging in political theater. This is much like woke. Yeah, beat the drum and yell a lot about a term that most people don't know anything about and see if it can get people riled up. And then when you get them riled up, then maybe they'll get their friends riled up and maybe they'll vote for you. 
He worked with the local community on picking a new name and says Liberty is the right one. It has ties to key units on the base, and it's what the troops there fight for. Anderson, who also is black, said the candidates were using the name change as a dog whistle and should have to explain why they want to return to Bragg. Is it because you want to honor the Confederacy? Is that why you want to do it? So why would you want to change the name back? It's unlikely the reason is reverence for Braxton Bragg. Again, naming commission attorney James Robinette. Yeah, he couldn't get along with anybody in the Confederacy, and he was a bad general. One of the Confederacy's worst, in fact, according to many historians. Indeed, it's not clear the idea was to honor him in the first place. The base was one of many built quickly for World War I. The military decided those in the South would be named for Confederate leaders. NPR found a memo from the time that suggests Bragg's name may have been chosen for a pretty simple reason. It was short and would make paperwork easier. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. Thrifting can be tough when you're looking for larger sizes, but a new pop-up flea market in Los Angeles may change that. KCRW's Andrea Batista reports the founders hope to make it a monthly event. Um, in a narrow alley behind a tattoo shop in North Hollywood, over 20 vendors have set up booths with racks of clothes. Music is bumping while shoppers rummage through brightly colored jackets, patterned skirts, and graphic tees. I actually just found this amazing linen summer dress with these buttons all down the side. Tara Quintero says clothes marketed toward plus-size people at big box stores often lack creativity. She likes thrifting as a way to find items that are unique and make her stand out. I love that these people's brands, the things they curate, are about, like, personality, fun, like having it be whatever you want. As a plus-size person, Quintero says she's been to flea markets all over L.A., and this is the first time she's felt included. They're never meant for people like me, and being able to walk in here and know I could shop at any of these tents is absolutely incredible. I feel spoiled (laughs) and also a little annoyed because it should always be like this. This flea market, known as Thick Thrift, was co-created by Rachel Frank. Frank is a 27-year-old copywriter and a stylist on the side. And as a plus-size shopper, they know what it's like to spend hours at a flea market and not find anything that fits them. It just feels like we're digging for scraps, basically, and that we have to be so innovative to, like, express ourselves and to feel good about our style because we have to try so much harder to curate. They say that many vintage clothing stores don't have dedicated sections for plus-size clothing, and there's less of it as you go higher in size. So shoppers might spend a huge amount of time digging through clothes that don't fit to find one item that does. Frank decided to start Thick Thrift earlier this year with two friends because they wanted to create a space where it was easy and fun for plus-size people to find cool clothes. I think expressing yourself through clothing is like a part of being human. And the fact that we're denied like the basic humanity of self-expression That's a really big deal. So it's just clothes, but it's actually a way for us to feel seen and heard as people. Thick Thrift isn't the only market like this. Similar events have been held in the last year in San Francisco and Chicago, and a community of plus-size vintage and thrift clothing resellers can be found online. But of course, people want to try things on to make sure that what they're buying looks and feels good. And being in person has another perk. Vendor Jessica Hinkle owns a shop in L.A. called Proud Mary Fashion, but she loves Thick Thrift because she gets introduced to new brands and vintage vendors she doesn't know. 
and she gets to be in community with other people who care about size-inclusive fashion. So it's great to see everyone cater to plus-size consumers in one space. Honestly, like just having fun and existing and not being judged. Lake Thrift's founders are hoping to pop up at a new location in July. For NPR News, I'm Andrea Bautista in Los Angeles. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil. And I'm Steve Inskip. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Questions remain about this weekend's mutiny by a mercenary group in Russia and how the fallout will impact that country's offensive in Ukraine. It's Monday, June 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new Alzheimer's drug by Cambridge-based Biogen may soon be approved by the FDA. Just the idea that they could gain more time is profoundly important and exciting. But the drug could be too costly, even for people with insurance. Also, people with medical debt are increasingly turning to sites like GoFundMe to raise money, but they rarely earn enough to cover their bills. Plus, young people begin a series of summer events to try to address gun violence in Boston. Gun violence is just something that I've had to deal with growing up my whole life. My pops has had to deal with it while he was growing up. It's just a cycle. Cloudy and near 80 today with storms possible this afternoon. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. There are questions in Russia today about the whereabouts of President Vladimir Putin. He's not been seen for two days following the brief failed mutiny by forces of the mercenary Wagner Group. NPR's Greg Myrie says the Wagner Group's founder, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has also vanished. Prigozhin gave an order for his troops to return to their camps, uh, either in in Ukraine or in, in southern Russia. There's been no indication that they're causing any trouble at the moment. But we haven't heard from Prigozhin either since on Saturday night he announced that he would be uh, be going, leaving Russia, going to Belarus. We don't know if he's still in Russia, if he's gone to Belarus. So he He's gone quiet as well, and for the moment, his his troops are quiet. NPR's Greg Myrie reporting. Tornadoes pummeled Indiana yesterday, leaving at least one person dead and another injured southwest of Indianapolis. Another tornado touched down in the southern Indianapolis suburbs. About 75 homes there are damaged, according to Indiana fire officials. More severe weather is now pushing toward the mid-Atlantic states. Coast Guard officials are opening an investigation into the implosion of the tourist submersible that killed five people last week. They were traveling to see the wreck of the Titanic. From member station WBUR, Walter Wuthman has more. Salvage crews are now recovering the shattered pieces of the submersible Titan, lying nearly 13,000 feet below the ocean's surface. Coast Guard Captain Jason Neubauer says investigators will determine the cause of the submersible's implosion. I have witnessed the personal impacts associated with these types of events. 
and my primary goal is to prevent a similar occurrence by making the necessary recommendations to enhance the safety of the maritime domain worldwide. The final report could also include recommendations for civil or criminal sanctions against people associated with the Titanic mission or the company that designed the destroyed submersible. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. The suspect in a mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs is expected to plead guilty in court today. From member station KRCC, Abigail Beckman reports. Five people were shot to death and at least 17 others were wounded in the attack in November 2022. The suspect, Anderson Lee Aldrich, faces more than 300 charges, including murder and hate crimes. A guilty plea would likely mean life in prison without the possibility of parole, and Aldrich would not face the death penalty. Aldrich is non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. Survivors and family members of the victims are expected to give statements at the hearing. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Beckman in Colorado Springs. Meanwhile, a federal jury opens the penalty phase today for the man convicted of killing 11 Jewish worshipers in a Pittsburgh synagogue. Robert Bowers could face the death penalty for the 2018 shooting. You're listening to NPR. This is WB Moore in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Healy is in Ireland this morning. This is her first international trip since taking office. Today she'll meet with business and tech leaders there. Tomorrow she'll address the Irish Senate to mark 30 years since the country decriminalized homosexuality. Abortion rights advocates will be at the State House today to support legislation they say is needed to protect patients and providers who perform abortions. Carol Rose is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. She says the bill would ban the sale of cell phone data. She believes that data could be used by lawyers in states with abortion bans. They could use it to prosecute people who received care or anyone who assisted them. So by putting a ban on the trade or sale of this kind of location data, it's a way to protect all of us, um, including people seeking abortion care. Cell phone data is used for a variety of purposes, including intelligence, public health and marketing. The companies that gather it say the information is collected anonymously. Newton police are trying to figure out who killed three elderly people in their home on Sunday. Investigators have not released the names of the people who died, nor have they commented on a motive. They're asking people who live in the Nonantum area to check their security cameras for any footage that might help with the investigation. We're just over a week away from the total shutdown of the Sumner Tunnel, and state highway officials are telling you to be prepared. The tunnel from East Boston to downtown will close on July 5th. It'll stay closed through the end of August for a major reconstruction project. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says you need to allow as much time as possible to get where you're going, especially if you're heading to Logan Airport. You're going to be better off waiting an extra hour at Logan to catch your flight than missing it. We don't want anybody to miss any of those critical appointments. So especially in the first couple of weeks when uh, traffic hasn't settled in yet, it's going to be much harder to, to actually gauge how long it's going to take you. During the closure of the tunnel, the blue line of the T will be free. There will also be reduced fares on the entire Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Red Sox ended their week-long road trip with a loss in Chicago. They fell to the White Sox 4-1 yesterday. The Red Sox are off today. They'll begin a quick series with the Miami Marlins tomorrow at Fenway. There's a dense fog advisory in effect for the South Coast, Cape, and Islands until 10 this morning. Mostly cloudy today with showers and storms possible this afternoon. It'll be near 80. Clouds overnight with more rain possible in the 60s. Cloudy with storms possible again tomorrow near 80 again. It's 70 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Coming up, we're going to hear about a new drug that could help slow Alzheimer's disease. That drug is expected to be approved for use by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. But before we get to that, we're going to examine the dramatic events in Russia this weekend. The leader of the Russian mercenary group Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, declared a rebellion inside Russia over the Kremlin's handling of the war in Ukraine. Prigozhin's private army is a key fighting force for Russia in Ukraine, but this weekend Prigozhin turned his men away from that fight and mobilized them to move toward Moscow. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, appeared on television and accused his former ally of treason, and then suddenly it all stopped. Here to help us make sense of all of this is Sean McFate. He's a professor at National Defense University and author of The Modern Mercenary. Good morning. Good morning. So, Sean, I just want to start with whether anyone expected what we saw happen over the weekend to actually happen. I think most people were surprised, but for those who have been examining private force and mercenaries, it does not come as a shock. There is a long, you know, mercenaries are the second oldest profession, and there's a long history of mercenaries turning on their masters. Mm-hmm. So the Prigozhin running a mercenary group that's very important in the war in Ukraine, suddenly turning on Putin. What do you think he accomplished? Because in the end, the march on Moscow stopped before they got there. Well, it's unknown what secret deal Putin and Prigozhin made with each other. I mean, remember, these two men go back to knowing each other from the 1990s. Yeah. Um, but they have, uh, Prigozhin has been increasingly frustrated over the past months with what he sees as the Kremlin's and especially Garmasov's and uh, Shogu's ineptitudes. And I think he's, a, a question, it's a question of him being fed up with it and also being an opportunist because Prigozhin is deeply ambitious himself. But Putin doesn't take any type of criticism lightly, any opposition, people have generally ended up in jail or poisoned. And here you see this stage, this rebellion happen. Do you expect Prigozhin to be spared similar consequences? I do. It's possible because unlike those other individuals and victims in Russia, Prigozhin has a powerful army at his back, which makes him extremely political. And remember also that in the last, you know, six months to almost a year, most of the victories we've heard about in Ukraine were not achieved by the Russian army, but by the Wagner group. Mm. They are the second best military in Ukraine. 
Let's talk about how they amassed this power, the Wagner Group, especially in recent years and, and particularly during the war in Ukraine. Sure. So the Wagner Group came on the scene in 2014 during the last Ukraine-Russian war. Right. And they became Russia's weapon of choice between 2014 and today. And they did expeditionary operations sort of on behalf of the Kremlin in Africa and in Syria. And the reason why Russia liked them is because they gave the Kremlin great plausible deniability. If things really went south, then Putin could just say it wasn't us and disavow the whole thing, which actually happened in 2018 when the, when the Wagner Group, about 300 of them, went up against American Delta Force, Green Berets, and Marines in eastern Syria. And you know the United States annihilated those mercenaries. We killed more Russians that night in February 2018 than any night in the Cold War. And the reason it didn't go to World War III is because both Moscow and Washington invoked the plausible deniability that mercenaries offer. Mm. They both said, nothing to see here. Okay, so you create this group that's not exactly under your control so that you can deny when it carries things out, but now it becomes a liability for Putin. I mean, how, where does he go from here? Well, this is indeed the problem of nation states hiring mercenaries. The problem of private warfare is control and accountability, and you have very little of it, especially in the conflict zone. So right now we have the problem, well, he, Putin has a problem, he, is he can give amnesty temporarily to Wagner Group and to Prigozhin, but we don't know how this ends because if he decides to, to annihilate them, then he's going to have a civil war on his hands. Sean McFate is a professor at National Defense University and author of The Modern Mercenary. Thank you for your time. Thank you. The Food and Drug Administration is poised to grant full approval to the first drug that slows down Alzheimer's disease. NPR's John Hamilton reports that in theory, this could affect more than one million people in the early stages. The drug is lecanemab, marketed under the name Lecembi. It removes a substance called amyloid beta from the brain. Lecanemab received conditional approval from the FDA in January, but until it gets full approval, it won't be covered for most Medicare patients, who represent the vast majority of people with Alzheimer's. Robert Eggy of the Alzheimer's Association says that makes the FDA's impending decision a big deal, even though patients know the drug isn't a cure. Just the idea that they could gain more time is profoundly important and exciting. That's why patients, their families have been speaking up so loudly for the need for Medicare coverage. Even with full approval, expected by July 6th, lecanemab's rollout could be slow. Medicare will require doctors to join a registry that tracks the drug's safety and effectiveness. Eggy says the extra paperwork may keep some doctors from prescribing the drug. We're most likely to see that happen in areas that are already traditionally underserved, where doctors are already stretched thin. So our biggest concern is that there will be whole communities that are left out entirely in terms of ability to access this treatment. Another concern is that payers may not cover all the brain scans and related services that go with lecanemab treatment. Dr. Zaldi Tan of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles says insurers could also require doctors and medical facilities to meet certain criteria before offering treatment. If that requirement becomes very restrictive, then only specialized centers will really be able to do this. And because of the limited capacity, I anticipate there will be a wait to get this medication. 
Tan says many patients who could get the drug may choose not to. He says it takes 18 months of treatment to slow the loss of memory and thinking by about six months. So what does that six months mean to them is my question, and whether that is worth showing up for an infusion every two weeks and risking brain bleeding and swelling. Even so, Tan says he supports the FDA's expected approval of lecanemab. It is a positive thing because if we are going to get eventually to an effective and safe therapy, we need to start somewhere. That view is shared by Dr. Mia Young, a geriatrician in Winston-Salem. But Young says the U.S. doesn't have enough memory specialists or infusion clinics to handle all the potential lecanemab patients. I think we're all flying to playing while we're building it in terms of the healthcare infrastructure. Young says it will take a huge effort just to identify the right patients. People with advanced Alzheimer's, for example, are not eligible. And people taking blood thinners may face a higher risk of bleeding in the brain. Of the millions of Americans who have Alzheimer's disease, I definitely don't think this is a drug that's applicable for the majority of them. Lecanemab's price may pose another barrier, even with insurance. The drugs maker, ASI, expects the drug alone to cost $26,500 a year. Diagnostic and follow-up tests will add to that, and a patient share could run into the thousands. The nonprofit Institute for Clinical and Economic Review analyzed lecanemab's value to patients. Dr. David Rin says it found the current price too high. A fair price for this would range from about $8,900 up to $21,500 per year, which is a very wide price range. Rin favors something toward the low end of that range. At its current price, he says, lecanemab could be very profitable for ASI and its U.S. partner, Biogen. I would guess that there are going to be a lot of people with early Alzheimer's who are asking for this drug, and if so, it could be a multi-billion dollar drug. Thanks mostly to coverage by Medicare. John Hamilton, NPR News. Nearly two million Muslims are gathering in Mecca for the start of the annual Hajj pilgrimage. It's the largest Hajj since COVID-19 restrictions dramatically curbed the pilgrimage. NPR's Aya Batrawi has this report. It's dawn in Mecca, and a live stream from there shows men in seamless white terry cloth robes and women in head covering standing shoulder to shoulder in prayer, facing towards the cube-shaped Black Kaaba, Islam's holiest site. For Muslims, it's known as Beit Allah, the metaphorical house of God. Temperatures in Mecca could reach 115 degrees or more. The Hajj is physically and spiritually demanding. It's a journey of sacrifice and repentance. Egyptian pilgrim Ramadan Shafi arrived with his wife to Mecca over a month ago, saving up for years for the Hajj. I asked him over the phone what it feels like to see the Kaaba and pray there. He says each time he lays eyes on the Kaaba, it's like seeing it for the first time. He says he feels an inner peace and close to God. Shafi is among nearly two million pilgrims performing the Hajj this week following the path the Prophet Muhammad once walked over 1,400 years ago. During the Hajj, men and women, their hands cupped open to the sky in prayer, weep for forgiveness, healing, and mercy. Shafi's wife, Safa Abdul Halim, tells me it's hard to put into words how she feels, but her excitement is palpable. And there are so many things she's praying for her five kids, her siblings, her country, Egypt. 
And still so much to thank God for too, she says. The Hajj is one of the largest and most logistically challenging gatherings of people on earth, and it consistently poses a challenge for Saudi authorities as they host people and manage crowds from nearly every country in the world. But the Hajj, it's not just an obligation to perform once in a lifetime if possible. For so many, these next few days are a chance to forego worldly desires and surrender to God. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get a preview as President Biden kicks off a national tour to try to get Americans excited about his administration's infrastructure, manufacturing, and clean energy projects. It's 819. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. A heads up for early morning drivers this week. The westbound Ted Williams Tunnel will be closed every night this week between midnight and 5 a.m. That's so crews can do maintenance and paving work. Drivers heading from East Boston to downtown will need to take the Sumner Tunnel. Cloudy today with a chance of scattered showers and thunderstorms this afternoon. We'll have a high near 80. Tonight, more rain possible with a low around 70. Tomorrow begins with patchy fog, rain, and thunderstorms. Then turns mostly cloudy with a high near 78. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIQ.com. From the Sci Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. So many Americans now have medical debt that crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe have become a resource to pay medical bills. But this is not for everybody. Noam Levy with our partner KFF Health News visited with a cancer survivor who says asking strangers for money 
was something she just couldn't do. Christy Fields was emotional as she cut the ribbon at a nonprofit store she recently opened to provide low-cost supplies for cancer patients. Y'all ain't gonna see me crying today, that's for sure. Fields was standing in a strip mall in Suffolk in eastern Virginia. The one thing my mom always said was you fight whatever spirit that you don't want near you. So we're fighting this cancer thing. Fields is 47. She's a mom, a Navy veteran, and the director of a preschool. Almost 10 years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. It couldn't have come at a worse time. My husband had just got laid off, and we had to move from my house into an apartment. The couple had four children, and their new apartment was on the third floor. So imagine having chemo treatments and walking up three flights of stairs. Not fun. Adding to the stress were medical bills. Whatever little money we had saved, it was gone within six to eight months. Then... One day at the hospital, Fields and her husband got some unsolicited advice. We had one nurse that said, oh, and maybe if y'all go on the news and say what's going on, people would donate money and help. A lot of people do that. GoFundMe, the nation's largest crowdfunding site, hosted more than 250,000 medical-related campaigns last year. Health policy researcher Nora Kenworthy studies medical fundraising. Our media, our social media is inundated with stories of campaigns that do super well and that are being shared all over the place. And those are wonderful stories and they're not representative of the typical experience. She says most campaigns actually fail to meet their goals. And fundraisers for people who are black or Hispanic, they're even less successful. Kenworthy and her colleagues looked at 827 medical campaigns on GoFundMe that had raised over $100,000 in 2020. Only five were for black women. Black patients also use the platform less, maybe because there's much less wealth in black communities. Your friends tend to be the same race as you. And so when you turn to those friends through crowdfunding for assistance, you are essentially tapping into their wealth and their income. The median white family has about $184,000 in assets, such as homes, savings, and retirement accounts. For the median black family, it's just $23,000. There may be another reason why black Americans use crowdfunding less, sensitivity about stereotyping. When Christy Fields' nurse suggested that she and her husband go to the public for help... And we just looked at each other like, wait, what? (laughs) No, we're not doing that. Fields is the daughter of a single mom who worked fast food jobs while going to school. She gave Fields a strict lesson. Getting help from family and friends is one thing. Asking strangers is something else. In the black community, we, a lot of the older generation, do not take handouts because you're feeding into the stereotype that's already perceived. Political scientist Martin Gillen says the sensitivity is understandable. He's the author of Why Americans Hate Welfare. There's sort of a centuries-long suspicion of the poor, a cynicism about the degree of true need. He says that's been reinforced by the inaccurate view that poverty is a black problem. Fields, who's African-American, says instead of making people advertise their suffering, there's a better way to help. When she recovered from cancer, she and her family delivered groceries and dropped off gas cards for other cancer patients. Now she's opening what she calls a cancer care boutique, offering wigs and prosthetics and skin lotions at discounted prices. When someone is in need, they don't want to be plastered all over your TV, all over Facebook, Instagram. They want to feel loved. While helping others, Fields hopes someday she'll pay off her own medical debt. She still owes several thousand dollars. That's Noam Levy with our partner KFF Health News.
Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. They say records are made to be broken. Well, over the weekend, baseball's Los Angeles Angels did just that. Bill Shakin is a baseball writer for the Los Angeles Times. What happened Saturday night in Denver was that the Angels, who have been a major league baseball team since 1961, scored more runs than they have in any game in their entire existence. 25 runs. 25 runs? That is crazy against the Colorado Rockies. By chance, Layla, I was at the game the night before in Denver. The Rockies won, and then the Angels came back in the next game. Started early in the game, 13 runs in the third inning, and then added eight more in the fourth. The combination of 21 runs in back-to-back innings, it was the first time any major league team had put up so many runs since 1894. So what we're saying is, In the entirety of the 20th century, nobody did that. Wow. Well, let's not make this all about the Angels. Colorado set a record, too. Not a record they want, probably. It was the worst (laughs) defeat in the history of the Rockies franchise. That said, a win is a win is a win. The Angels do not get to hoard any runs and carry them over to the next day to make it a little more palatable. Whether you win 2-1 to or 25-1, to you get one win. And that's the beauty of the long regular season in baseball. On Sunday, the teams played again, and the Rockies answered back, beating the Angels by a single run for three. This afternoon on All Things Considered, Florida has become a hotbed for political news stories with a national scope. From the presidential recount in 2000 to the recent federal indictment against former President Donald Trump, Sunshine State is often affecting national politics. So how did Florida become so important? Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We hear from a group of young people who are planning a series of protests and events this summer to address gun violence in Boston. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100 percent electric and 100 percent BMW. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin has made no public comments since Saturday about last week's short-lived uprising by Wagner Group mercenaries against Russia's military. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says he thinks it reflects political weakness in Moscow 16 months into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Andrei Soldatov is a Russian investigative journalist and a fellow at the Center for European Analysis. He agrees with Stoltenberg. It made Putin seem really weak because uh, while Putin's been talking about uh, national sovereignty and because of this crisis, uh, he got his minor partner, Alexander Lukashenko, president of Belarus, getting involved, fixing Putin's problem with uh, his uh, pal, which doesn't look good. Soldatov was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Putin agreed to allow the head of the Wagner Group and his soldiers to receive amnesty in Belarus. The sentencing phase of Robert Bowers' trial gets underway today in Pennsylvania. Earlier this month, Bowers was convicted of killing 11 people at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. That was back in 2018. Bowers faces a possible death sentence for that attack. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. U.S. Coast Guard officials in Boston are opening an investigation into the implosion of the tourist submersible last week. Five people died traveling to the wreck of the Titanic. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman tells us, the final report could include recommendations for civil or criminal sanctions. Salvage crews are currently recovering the wreckage of the submersible Titan off the seafloor. Coast Guard officials say they've also opened their highest level of inquiry to determine the cause of the disaster. Coast Guard Captain Jason Neubauer is leading the Marine Board of Investigation, or MBI. The MBI, however, is also responsible for accountability aspects of the incident, and it can make recommendations to the proper authorities to pursue civil or criminal sanctions as necessary. Marine safety experts warned the company that developed Titan about potential safety issues related to its submersible's design in the years before it catastrophically imploded. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Lowell officials say they plan to clear out a homeless encampment in the city. They say they're clearing the dog park camp because of drug and safety issues. Advocates are against the sweep. They say officials didn't give residents enough notice to leave the area. They also point out there aren't enough shelter beds available. The work of a prominent behavioral scientist at Harvard is being questioned. Other scientists have raised concerns about the work of Francesca Gino. In a blog post, they say she fabricated the results of her studies. Harvard has declined to comment on the findings. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Visit Mazes and Brain Games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at MOS.org. The Red Sox lost to the White Sox 4-1 to yesterday in Chicago. Boston finished a seven-game road trip with a 3-4 and record. The Sox are off today. They'll host the Miami Marlins tomorrow. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 this morning. It covers the South Coast, Cape, and Islands. It'll be mostly cloudy today. Today and there are thunderstorms possible this afternoon that may bring heavy rain and gusty winds. Tonight, temperatures fall to around 70 with more showers possible. And tomorrow may start with more thunderstorms. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 78. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. For many Americans, it's the summer travel season, and President Biden is no exception. He and his cabinet will visit more than 20 states to try to get Americans excited about the administration's infrastructure, manufacturing, and clean energy projects. He starts in Washington this morning and by Wednesday will be in Chicago. NPR's Deepa Shivaram joins us now to talk about this. Good morning. Hey there. Okay, so we know the president loves to promote trains and bridges, but isn't he starting with a different sort of infrastructure here? Yeah, it's actually infrastructure week and or month. So the president (laughs) is starting this tour off with uh, a a speech from the White House about access to high-speed internet. Right now, the White House says there are about 8.5 million homes and businesses around the country that don't have internet. The announcement the president is making is that about $40 billion from the 2021 infrastructure law will now be up for grabs. So states can apply for that money and use it to expand high-speed internet access. White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients says this will be especially helpful for rural communities. The president's Invest in America agenda is bringing internet to people across the country and at the same time creating good paying jobs. And this is just the kickoff. Biden, Vice President Harris, cabinet officials and other White House officials are going to be talking about all kinds of infrastructure programs across the country in these next three weeks. Why now? Yeah, so basically they want to advertise their infrastructure investments. Even though this funding has been around for a while, like I said, that law passed in 2021, people don't necessarily know about these programs and they aren't giving the president credit for them. Part of the problem is that these programs take time. For example, these longer term projects, the immediate impact won't be seen for years. Like this internet funding won't be fully available until 2025. So it'll be a few years before some of these communities actually get connection. So in the meantime, the White House is trying trying to argue that these investments are improving the economy and eventually will bring back more money into people's pockets. That's what Biden's going to say on Wednesday in Chicago. But in order to convince people, he needs to get into the specifics. I talked to Lindsay Owens about this. She leads the Groundwork Collaborative, a left-leaning economic think tank. They can pull together the number of jobs they've created. They can pull together the cost savings that they're providing families with policies to bring down the cost and the price of insulin, to bring down the price of other prescription drugs over time. So I think the more they can show exactly how these investments benefit Americans' pocketbooks, uh, the better. Deepa, is it hard for the president to make this case, given that Americans look at him and give him an underwater approval rating, as they say, and they don't really approve of his handling of the economy either? Right. These programs themselves are politically popular, but the president isn't. The NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll from March showed that just 38 percent of Americans said that they approved of how Biden is handling the economy. And of course, this is all coming ahead of the 2024 presidential race. So they're trying to show people what another four years under Biden would look like, especially in states where they're trying to win over voters. NPR's Deepa Shivram, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
We've been gathering the stories of people on the crowded smuggler ship that sank off the coast of Greece earlier this month. Several hundred migrants were on board. Only about 100 were saved, with around 80 found dead so far. And among the presumed dead is a Syrian father of four who lived in a refugee camp in Jordan. He was trying to help his ill child. Local journalist Jinan Al-Nakshabandi interviewed his widow for NPR in Jordan, and NPR's Ruth Sherlock tells the story. Three-year-old Khaled al-Rahal is curled up in a hospital armchair under a blue blanket. He's having chemotherapy through a tube attached to a cannula in his left hand. His mother, Narmin al-Zamil, is beside him, as she has been all these months he's battled leukemia. It's been a full year now. My son's cancer is among the most serious cases. They're Syrian and live in a refugee camp in Jordan. So when Khalid was diagnosed, Azamil says she and her husband appealed to the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, to help fund the treatment. But they were told there was nothing UNHCR could do. Because they said it's expensive, not even the first biopsy they are willing to pay for. Khalid might soon need an expensive bone marrow transplant. Other donors have stepped in to pay for some chemotherapy, but only intermittently. This terrified my husband. What would happen when the treatment stopped? God only knows. We lost whatever nerves we had left. He decided he had to go. He contacted friends who'd made the dangerous trip in smugglers' boats across the Mediterranean Sea to Europe. In some of his last voice notes, sent to friends and relatives in the days before he sailed and later shared with NPR, Tahir al-Rahal makes clear why he's making the journey. We don't want money, and we're not just trying to live comfortably. The most important thing in the world is for my son to get cured. He asks friends for advice on which cities in Germany quickly process requests for family reunification. Please send me the name of two or three cities that would have good treatment, so I know where to head to if I make it. Last week, his wife learned the terrible news. The boat had sunk off the coast of Greece on June 14th. Her husband was not among the 104 survivors. When NPR contacted UNHCR to ask why they can't help more with Khalid's treatment, they said they couldn't discuss individual cases. But in a statement, they said access to healthcare for refugees has been cut back as funding has dropped. The statement called for Mediterranean countries to do more for refugees and migrants. Now alone, Al-Zamil has to make the difficult journey almost every week to the hospital. UNHCR staff drove her a few times, but she usually has to find other transport. This means sometimes travelling through the night in shared vans and carrying her weak son long distances. The hospital is far. It's exhausting and it's so hard for Khalid. This time, our local journalist, Janan Al-Nakshabandi, gives them a ride back to the camp so they can talk more. In the car, Khalid watches on repeat a video of his father hugging one of his siblings as he leaves the house for the last time before he set out to try to reach Europe. A prayer overlays the sound in the video. Mama, is Daddy coming back? Khalid asks. Gently, tearing up, Al-Zamil replies, He's not coming, baby. Didn't I tell you Dad is going to heaven? To heaven, Khalid repeats to himself.
As Amil says, her other three children's spirits are destroyed. They imagined leaving the dusty refugee camp and their poverty behind for a life where they could study and their brother could be cured. Now, she says, their father and their hopes for the future are gone, and she and her children are alone. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the economic implications of the USDA's full approval for the sale of cultivated meat. Proponents say the meat, grown from animal cells in labs, is more humane and environmentally friendly. We have some fog this morning, then temperatures rise to around 80, and cloudy skies may gradually clear to let in some sun, but there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms this afternoon. Tonight, it may fall into the 60s, and more thunderstorms are possible. Tomorrow may begin with yet more storms, then it'll be mostly cloudy and in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot. Partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com Stock prices for Bill Ricca-based Conformis nearly doubled since news came out last week that it'll be acquired by a North Carolina firm. Conformis makes custom knee and hip replacements. Company leaders say the deal will close by the end of September. Springfield-based Smith & Wesson estimates it'll spend up to $158 million to move its headquarters to Tennessee. The gunmaker announced the move in 2021. It expects to move its front office by this fall. MassLive reports Smith & Wesson has not filed any layoff notices with Massachusetts labor officials. The gunmaker says it'll continue manufacturing at its Springfield plant indefinitely. Visitors to Faneuil Hall will have a new destination for their next sugar rush. The Sugar Factory is planning to open a new restaurant in the open space once occupied by Anthem Kitchen and Bar. The restaurant is known for a sugar-filled menu that includes over-the-top milkshakes and candy cocktails. The proposed space would include two floors and an outdoor patio. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Join a community of problem solvers at the school ranked first in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's hands-on approach helps you develop critical thinking and communication skills so you can lead, innovate, and inspire. Begin your entrepreneurial leadership journey at babson.edu slash success. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Young people in Boston are facing an epidemic of gun violence. Last month, a group of them took a dramatic step to draw attention to the problem. They staged a die-in, lying flat on their backs and stopping traffic near a busy Dorchester intersection. 
Those young people were organized by the nonprofit Center for Teen Empowerment based in Roxbury and Dorchester. They're planning demonstrations throughout this summer and join me now to talk about that. Thanks, you guys, for being here. It's so nice to see you here. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thank you for having us. Would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, My name is Alejandro Gonzalez. I am the program coordinator for Teen Empowerment Boston uh, and a community organizer. This is Miko Clark. I am a youth organizer and an upcoming artist. My name is Macy O'Reilly. I'm a youth organizer, artist manager, and youth artist with Teen Empowerment. All right, let's start with Maceo. Would you mind telling us how gun violence has affected you and why you are drawn to advocacy? Gun violence is just something that I've had to deal with growing up my whole life. My pops has had to deal with it while he was growing up, and it's just like something that is just a cycle. Most of it's based off of revenge. You know, it's just like a, a there's like this big revenge culture. And what T.E. strives to do is to change that into a forgiveness culture. Mika, how about you? What brought you to this work? Uh, I live in Mattapan and I've seen a lot of things going on that I didn't really like. Only because it didn't really seem like it was the norm and people made it seem like it was the norm. There was fights every day. If you went to the park, you couldn't really go to the park to go to the park and play. You would go to the park see a fight, and have to go straight home. I remember when I had my own issue also going home from the corner store, and I also had, like, got an altercation. I didn't really understand why. So I realized, like, yeah, there got to be some type of change that's going on. And then tell me a little bit about what's planned for this summer. This is Alejandro. Once a month, TE will host and support engaging events, like open mics or parties, but also political demonstrations. It's really a movement that is centered around reimagining what safety looks like and promoting peace through the power of the people. Macy, who needs to be listening when you're doing this advocacy? While it's happening to one specific group of people, like everybody should be aware what the root problem is. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to the mental well-being and the environment that we were placed in as young people of color. Throughout all the redlining, throughout all the Jim Crow laws, they still affect us today. Because most of my friends aren't mentally well, and they don't know how to express that. Since we were born in that environment, a lot of kids don't know anything more. That's just the way their mind works, unfortunately, because we've been in such a hostile environment for so long. So the people who can do something, what do you want them to do? This is Miko. We're people of color. People of color have been oppressed for many years. We know this. So it's like, okay... I'm continuing to grow up, but I still feel some type of way. Why do I feel this type of way? Because you're black. You're missing, like, okay, why is this child acting out? Is this child going through something at home? Is this child going through something in their head? Like, it's always it's always going to be a domino effect. It's always something that's behind it. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's what they missed. There's never a why. It's always, okay, so you feel this way, you're doing this, and then it's boom. Like, that's it. I feel like there's never a second chance. There's never a let me explain, let me, like speak to you and tell you why I'm acting like this. It's never, never that. Um, this is Maceo. I just feel like we should have some more resources. Most of our mental well-being, that's like all the stress, it comes from not being financially stable enough to afford certain things. And I feel like if we had those resources, if we had, you know, affordable health care, affordable therapy, this affordable cost of living, you know, we would have less issues like this. Maceo Wright and Miko Clark are youth organizers for the Center for Teen Empowerment, and Alejandro Gonzalez is a program coordinator. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank Thank you you for for having us. us. (laughs) 
You're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on this weekend's insurrection in Russia, plus what NASA is hoping to learn from the Australian outback. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. U.S. universities educate thousands of foreign-born students. They graduate with the skills the U.S. needs, and they want to stay here. So why does our immigration system make it so hard for them to stay? They're benefiting from the failures of the U.S. system. We're just letting this happen. We're watching it go. We're watching these people leave. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The head of the Russian mercenary group is in Belarus after being exiled for leading a revolt this weekend against Vladimir Putin. A new Alzheimer's drug made in Cambridge could soon get full approval from the Food and Drug Administration. And Coast Guard officials in Boston plan to lead an investigation into the implosion of a tourist submersible that killed five people last week. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Cloudy today, near 80, with a chance of showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and evening. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. How currency markets and global oil prices are tracking the new uncertainty in Russia. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. And by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. In Russia, this weekend's rebellion of armed mercenaries led by a warlord was brief, and the leader of the Wagner Group is now said to be outside of Russia, although it's not clear just where. As experts try to assess damage to Russian leader Vladimir Putin's authority, money is flowing, especially away from the Russian currency today. Marketplace's Henry Epp has that. The Russian ruble hit a 15-month low in early trading Monday, though it has rebounded a bit since. Still, the fallout from the weekend's stunning news led the currency to its lowest point since shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. The rebellion also shook oil markets as traders worried the instability in the oil-producing region could have broader effects on global energy supplies. The price of Brent crude was up as high as one and a third percent Monday before falling back. And even though the region appears to have stepped back from the brink of an even greater crisis, the rebellion could lead to more caution from investors. Early Monday, traders were flocking to a common safe haven investment in times of turmoil, gold. Gold prices were up about six-tenths of a percent this morning. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Here, Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq futures are little changed. Some money is going into the perceived safety of U.S. government bonds, pulling the 10-year interest rate down to 3.69 percent. 
The Agriculture Department has granted full regulatory approval to two companies that cultivate meat. It's meat by propagating animal cells, not from slaughter, that companies see as humane and better for the environment. Here's Marketplace's Matt Levin. Sometime in the next few months, you'll be able to eat cell-cultivated chicken at Bar Kren, a high-end restaurant in San Francisco run by a three-Michelin-star chef. Amy Chen is COO at Upside Foods, one of the two Bay Area companies that got the USDA seal of approval. When consumers try something new and encounter it for the first time, we want to make sure that it's a good experience. And the best way for that to happen is to have a professional chef to prepare the dish itself. As opposed to dad bringing home cultivated meat from the store, overcooking it, and blaming it on bad stem cells. There's also just logistical obstacles to getting cultivated meat to the supermarket. The industry has to scale up. But Bruce Friedrich at the Good Food Institute is confident the industry will get there eventually. Well, it's exactly like renewable energy and electric vehicles. Uh, The products are going to cost more until they have the capacity to scale up. And right now, cell-cultivated meat is a bit like the Tesla of environmentally friendly proteins. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. The companies cultivating meat are privately held, not on stock exchanges yet. Eat Just, Mossa, Believer, Maltus, BioBetter, and Upside. Today, officials in U.S. state capitals are refreshing their browsers, awaiting news on how much of the $42 billion in federal money to upgrade Internet connectivity will come their way. It's part of the 2021 infrastructure law. The money is being apportioned according to new, more accurate maps of places where broadband is the worst. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, provider of an all-in-one management platform with a suite of fully integrated applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of business in one software. More at odoo.com. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. We're keeping an eye on a major business of sports story. Argentine soccer star Lionel Messi appears headed to the U.S. He's set to sign with the Major League Soccer Club Inter-Miami. The winning bid reportedly includes money from tech giant Apple, which is interesting, right? Andres Martinez, a professor at Arizona State University's Cronkite School, joins us. Welcome. Thanks for having me, David. Reports are that the deal for Messi was sweetened by Apple kicking in maybe some money. Why would they pay for this? The real story here is that it's essentially Apple TV that's acquiring the world superstar and, and the, you know, our default global sport. Apple signed a 10-year deal with the MLS for global TV rights, and it is going to give revenue-sharing participation to Messi. This is the rise of media within sports as the driving purpose. There was a study of Nielsen ratings done by Sportico that showed that 94 of the most watched telecasts in the U.S., were live sporting events. And I think that's what Apple is seeing, that if you want to drive subscriptions, you have to offer compelling live sport. Yeah, if they can just juice up interest in the U.S., but this could work. That could be the strategy. And we have seen the rise of soccer within the U.S. and the rise of the U.S. within the global sport. And I think technology and media is really driving this. I mean, we we read a lot about how, you know, we're rethinking globalization. Globalization is you know, running out of fuel and we're retrenching. 
sport hasn't gotten that memo. We're seeing an acceleration of globalization in sport. You know, given Apple's role in international soccer now, it almost seems like it was a plot. Remember Apple's big comedy was Ted Lasso, right? Which was essentially a vehicle to introduce to, for instance, U.S. audiences, how that crazy overseas soccer stuff works. Yes, and, and it's very meta because if you'll recall, Ted Lasso, the character, was first created by NBC to promote you know, their acquisition of the rights to the Premier League in the U.S., and then years later, Apple took that character and made it into this comedy that, that we all love that transcends soccer itself. But it's an interesting marriage of this global sport and the global reach of U.S. media. I mean, Leo Messi, to come back to the, the latest news, he has three times more Instagram followers than LeBron James. So this is, I think, why Apple is saying, Leo Messi, we're not just going to write you a big check. You deserve equity in what we're trying to do here. Andres Martinez is editorial director of Future Tense, a collaboration between Arizona State, the think tank New America, and the media outlet Slate to cover emerging technologies, public policy, and society. He's also on the faculty at Arizona State. Professor Martinez, thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. Cloudy and near 80 today with a chance of showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and evening. It's 71 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.